Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. The turn of the century newspaper baron Joseph Pulitzer once remarked, quote, our republic and its press will rise or fall together, unquote. As the election looms, I, like many, am disappointed and bewildered by the constant noise of 24-hour cable news channels, paid opinion writers, and social media feeds. But there is a short list of writers and broadcasters that manage to cut through the clutter and that I listen to regularly. Kurt Anderson on Studio 360, Brian Lehrer on WNYC Radio, and my guest today, Bob Garfield, the co-host of On the Media with Brooke Gladstone. Garfield's trenchant interviews hold not just politicians and newsmakers accountable, but also the journalists who cover them. He's truly as fair and balanced as they come. Maybe that's because he's always found himself in the middle. I was the middle child in a middle-of-the-middle-class household. and uh, Where? In uh, western suburbs of Philadelphia, the affluent Jewy suburbs of Philadelphia. Uh, it was kind of a upper-middle-class ghetto uh, called Balakinwood. And uh, my parents were active, civically active, and they talked about the news mainly through the prism of complaining about various political figures. And as I go back and reconstruct, they were progressive because the people they were bad-mouthing, uh, now that I think about it, were Republicans. But we didn't have, you know, we didn't sit down at the table and discuss political issues or anything like that. What did he do for a living? Well... Obviously, he was the uh, general manager of a factory that made paper plates, and <laughs> duh. And but what's fabulous about it is the brand of paper plates was aristocrat. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and I, you know, it was not false advertising. I mean, they were the most aristocratic paper plates that I've ever used. Uh, they even about. handled baked beans. I'm just saying. Sure. Yeah, so he was in the. Um, he also had a. He kind of moonlighted. He had a creative side. He moonlighted uh, as the vice president of a company that made corrugated cartons. So he was a diverse man. He certainly was. What about her? A Renaissance man. And what, what about her? <laughs> uh, my mom was a housewife. She was in the plastic utensil fortune. <laughs> she inherited a plastic uh, utensil fortune. Wood that she had. We actually we. Uh, kept a kind of uh, Potemkin village of affluence, but w we really struggled uh, to keep up with the, you know, the Mandelbaums. Uh, we'd, and it was, uh, but it was fine. I mean, we, we didn't really know. Again, this I reconstructed in adult life how my parents struggled at the time. But, um, you know, it was, it was a really unremarkable childhood. And, you know, I wasn't miserable. I wasn't happy. I, I don't have a whole lot of fodder for writing now because my parents didn't abuse me and my father wasn't a drunk. And uh, uh, it was... But in the important. high school years, were, were you involved in any kind of media, radio, writing? Uh, I, was the, uh, I was the president of the tetracycline squad. 
<laughs> my uh, high school was entirely defined by uh, acne. Uh, it was absolutely the defining aspect of my high school life. And I was politically uh, interested. I was part of a fledgling organization called something like Concerned Students for Concern. And we were for a number of things and against a number of things, precisely which ones I don't recall. But it was in the middle of Watergate. And it was at the more or less, it had just followed the the point in our history where college students were occupying administration buildings and so forth. So I was playing at being politically active. But uh, when it came time to go to college, where'd you go? Uh, father died, dropped my plans, fortunately, to go to an itsy-bitsy little school in Vermont called Marlboro College, which had like 200 people on the campus, yeah. all in. I'm not students... Half of it was staff. Uh, half of it was staff. I think all dressed in you know black leotard tops, writing a lot of poetry. I think there were bongos involved. I'm not sure. But uh, it was expensive and we didn't have money. I couldn't go there. So I went uh, to Oxford. No, I'm sorry. It's Penn State. <laughs> <laughs> I Penn went State. to Penn State where I got involved in the newspaper as the world's worst 19-year-old columnist. I... I didn't quite found a humor magazine, but I, there had been a humor magazine at Penn State called Froth that I took up and essentially ran single-handed until I graduated. And uh, What was the inclination in you to do that, to want to share information with people, opine about things? If you hadn't been doing that in high school, when you got to college, what do you think opened up for you? Uh, what I think opened up was uh, my genome. I came from a long line of unbelievably opinionated people. And I'm the first one ever, you know, to make a nickel at it. There may have been a desert of facts in my growing up, but there was absolutely an abundance of opinions. And when you left Penn State, you went right into that as a career? I became a newspaper reporter in Reading, Pennsylvania, uh, part of Pennsylvania Dutch land. I actually had an internship while I was still in college, and it just was one of those epiphany moments. First day in a newsroom slovenly dressed people saying fuck out loud. Well, this is for me. This is where I want to spend my life. And, you know, did some really solid reporting on agricultural economics. I, I literally did a four-part series about milk marketing as an intern and uh, then, you know, chased some real news. How many years so were you there? I, I was an intern for a few months, and then I immediately got a job out of school as, as a reporter in Reading. In, in Reading. Yeah, yeah, four years, four years. So you were in Reading for four years. Yeah. And, and so we're talking the late 70s probably, correct? Uh, correct. What is journalism in your mind? Is it, has that changed? When you were doing that back then, what was journalism to you? To me, it was finding out about the shit that happens and uh, getting it back to the folks it matters to. I mean, that's what it comes down to, I think, ultimately. You know, and then there's plus a big part of it that is just looking for phenomenal, phenomenological stuff. There's stuff that's going on that isn't necessarily news. You're not watchdogging government figures and taxpayer dollars. You're just kind of Patterns, looking, trends. Yeah, yeah. And the key for me always has been to report it fairly neutrally. Now, that, that has changed not only in the general practice of journalism but in my heart of hearts. But the idea was even if you have a point of view – just to make damn sure that you're intellectually honest about the exercise and that uh, you're being fair-minded. And that was, by and large, the the rules of the game in the world when you began in the I 70s. think so. Now, I was not trained 
I didn't go to J school. I was an English major. Right. Um, but uh, I happily blundered into journalism, knew literally from the first morning that that's just what I wanted to do. And But I, was, I wasn't even trained in basic journalism ethics. So on the one hand— Did that hurt you? I, I did some things as a young journalist that were firing offenses. Nobody would ever today countenance some of the things I did that were— Encouraged by my own newspaper. Can you was, give me an example? I, you know, I would needed tires for my car, and my city editor, who was corrupt, sent me to one of his pals and said, "You know, tell him uh, I sent you, and you'll get a discount." I took a discount on my tires. I mean, that's a firing offense right there. I was doing some investigative reporting, chasing the connections between some drug dealers and local officials, and I went along with a county detective who was proceeding along similar lines and went to talk to some people and I didn't happen to mention that I was a reporter. I didn't say I was a policeman, but I was with a policeman and I certainly wouldn't have objected if the people we were talking to thought I was a policeman. Grossly unethical. And later I did something even worse. I actually cooperated with the police while trying to track down physical evidence from someone we both thought was a murderer. This is actually a story that I'm going to bother you with because it's, it's horrifying. A poor woman murdered in her home. It happens on the other paper's uh, uh, cycle, so I'm doing the second day story, which means knocking on neighbors' doors and getting to say that, oh, this is so horrible and uh, we thought this was a safe community and now we're afraid. So the guy next door goes through this whole song and dance about he's going to put up lights and he's, he's going to buy double locks, triple locks, deadbolts, barricades. And I walked away thinking, I think he was play acting. I think he was overdoing it a little bit, you know? So when I was talking to the cops later in the day, I said, does the next door neighbor have an alibi? They said, oh, yeah, yeah, it checks out. Said, okay. Right. So I wrote my little story. And the next day, the police chief calls me. He says, why did you ask about the neighbor's alibi? I said, well, you know, I thought he was... Uh, I thought he was just overdoing it a little. You know, I sensed play acting. I thought he was <laughs> playing to the mezzanine. And uh, he said, that's, that's interesting because his alibi broke down. He lied to us. And they pieced together this scenario. The victim had, had had foot surgery and he was helping her out, taking her out the trash, but that he had been obsessing over for years, decades, and came this opportunity when his wife was out and she was home recuperating he goes in. He has a key because he's been helping her. Uh, she's in the basement. She comes upstairs with a bar, and she sees, oh, it's him. She puts the bar down. He makes an advance. She spurns it. Next thing you know, she's raped and murdered. Sounded good to me, but he had hired a lawyer. And the mean lawyer the, the, the story sounded good to sounded, you, not the rape and the murder. fantastic, and the murder is horrendous, but the, the profile just totally was in sync with my vision of what might have taken place. So, but the guy hired a lawyer. When the question got a little more rigorous, the guy hired a lawyer and they wouldn't let him surrender fingerprints, hair samples, anything. You want it, get a search warrant. Otherwise, leave my client alone. So, incredibly, I, you know, journalist of whatever, 14 months, contrived to do a follow-up story of this guy. And I take my, <laughs> I, oh, the idea is I stand there with my pen, right? And while I'm talking to him, I drop it. He picks it up. We have his fingerprints. We 
have his fingerprints. The police, you know, see if it matches the one partial that they have from the crime scene, and they get their man. Well, it didn't quite play out that way. What happened was I stood at his door, and he's angry to see me there. I said, ah, he's angry to see me here. That's a guilty conscience. I drop the pen. It falls. He stares and stares at He it. stares at the pen. I stare at the pen. I look at him. He looks at me. I look at the pen. I look back at him. He's not moving. I say, I got that. <laughs> pen down. Pick up the pen. Anyway, for years and years and years, I thought that this guy had dodged the bullet of justice and the police had not done a good job and this poor woman was dead and he eventually himself died. One year ago, the Pennsylvania State Police arrested a man for the murder of this woman. He was a serial killer. He had spent most of the previous 15 years in prison for other murders. For whatever reason, he unburdened himself about this one. His DNA matched the samples. Well, they didn't have DNA testing in those days, but they kept the evidence. The DNA matched not only did I grossly, unethically cooperate with the police who were supposed to be reporting about, not collaborating with, I did it in the service of hounding an innocent man. So, no, I, I, I didn't go to J school. Okay. Oh, you you seem you very that. burdened by that. I haven't done many really terrible things in my life. I mean, I, I did something nasty to a girl in sixth grade. I was mean to her, and I, st I, I still shiver and shudder when I think about it. But now, when you're in that period of your life, you're in Reading, and you're in the, uh, the beginning of your career, what news are you consuming? Are you an evening news network guy? Are you a, there's nothing online. You can't read the Times. Right. Uh, what are you consuming? Uh, well, first of all, I was at work when the evening news was on, so I really didn't have access to what most people were saying to find out what was going on in the world, right? But I did have the AP wire right by my desk, so I read a lot of stuff in the wires. I uh, read the Philadelphia Inquirer. I did not read the New York Times every day. I did not read the Washington Post. You know, my paper of record was the Inquirer. Our paper kind of sucked. There were a few talented people. There were a lot of not very talented people. I had talent, but uh, obviously, I had no the idea Annenbergs what the fuck I was doing. The Annenbergs still owned the paper back then, correct? The Annenbergs still owned the paper. I think it was Triangle Publications, right. yeah. And, and what did you think of the Inquirer back then? Oh, it was, it was fantastic. They had all the money in the world. You know, the newspaper business used to be not only profitable, but obscenely profitable. I mean, profit margins in the, on the order of 35 and 40%. It was, you know, it was the, the golden print, age. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That's all gone, and that is one of my current obsessions, but we'll put that aside for the moment. So uh, while I was in Reading, Pennsylvania, covering the Sewage Treatment Authority, they were winning Pulitzer Prizes for like going to Africa and doing four-part series on the plight of the rhino. And uh, I'm sitting at the school board meeting trying to find out what part of the budget was going towards cafeteria lunches. Then what changes? You leave Reading and go where? Then I went to a paper in Wilmington, Delaware, the Wilmington News Journal, which was, even though it's a tiny little state and not that big a paper, was very professionally run and had a lot of talent. And How long there? I was there for less than a year. And then where'd you go? Well, Wilmington was owned by Gannett. Gannett, 
started USA Today. This was in 1981. They were getting that going. It launched on September 15th, 1982. And I was kind of a friend and drinking buddy of my boss, the managing editor. Oh, I'm an abusive drinker. And I... Uh, How could it be otherwise? <laughs> and I was. You know, I'm, I've moderated uh, in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. But uh, I was an aspiring abusive drinker. Let me put it to you that way. And my drinking buddy yeah. was the was the managing editor. He became the business editor at this new paper, USA Today. He dragged me down with him, and overnight I was a, was a business his columnist. His name's Taylor Buckley. Who was that guy that always had have his picture on USA Today in the early days? Who was oh, the, that's the Al Newhart. Al Newhart. Yeah. yeah, he was the he was the chairman of Gannett, right. and this was his three quarters of a billion dollar vanity project, and it, you know it worked for a while. I mean, they're not making money now. Nobody. It's a newspaper. Of course, right. they're not making money. But how does US? How does someone like USA Today stay in business now? Who's eating all that cost? And uh, why? Gannett is still making money mainly because of its television properties. The products themselves have been reduced to almost nothing. I mean, it's a shame this is audio. I was in Des Moines. It's one of their papers, and picked up the Des Moines Register, and it's you know it's kind of like this. It's it's been physically shrunken so much. It's like open a, a little dollhouse. A bazooka book. Joe. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bazooka Joe book. comic. The newspapers are thin, thin, thin. They're the newsrooms have been decimated. The newspaper business is unsustainable. This is one of the great crises of the economy, but mainly of our democracy. We, the the media economy, is in such a vortex of ruin. You don't think the that Times is solving that problem for themselves with the online edition? They seem to no. be coming out of the they're, hole. They're marginally profitable, right. but they're still, they, they're, you know, they're looking at the trend lines and they're still f- figuring out ways to cut, cut, cut while looking for the, you know, these, this magic revenue bullet that's somehow going to solve everybody's problem. I have spent the last 12 years in deep think and also deep anxiety about this situation you know, I can say, unfortunately, pretty unequivocally, that magic bullet is has not appeared. Now, do you think that, that this has happened, we'll use the Times, obviously, as the, as the best uh, model. Do you think this has happened because those people have gone elsewhere for their news, or they're just consuming less news, period, or both? No, it's not news consumption that's gone down. On the contrary, there we we are awash in news because there are, uh, we can access any news organization in the world instantaneously on our telephones, right? So we've got no problem getting news. We have problem locating rigorous news covering the nuts and bolts of government. I mean, try to find some state legislative coverage in any state in the union. It's hard to do because nobody can afford to have a state house reporter anymore, uh, much less the smaller cogs in the wheel of government. I mean, they're just completely, completely neglected because nobody can afford to put the human beings at the meetings with the notepads like right. I sat there like for Like foreign bureaus that all got shut down at CBS foreign, and so Yes, exactly. They've, they've cut deep into the bone. And there's, there's really nothing on the horizon to solve the problem. The problem is there's, the Internet has given us an absolute glut of content. The barriers of entry to be a news organization used to be a billion dollars for, you know, printing presses and buildings and employees and trucks and ink and paper. And that kept all but a handful of oligarchs out of the business. Well, now you can be a newspaper for the cost of an iPhone. You get free production, free distribution. So there's a tremendous glut of content. Like Lorne Michael says about, he said about YouTube, it would say broadcast yourself. 
And he said, you know, sometimes we realize that having executives who are in charge of networks and movie studios who decide who's ready to be broadcast wasn't such a bad idea after all. And maybe broadcasting yourself isn't the best way for us to get the best content out there. But let me let me ask you this. So when, you, 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 when you're done with Gannett, Gannett is how long? The USA Today is how long? I was there for four years. And then where do you go? Well, then obviously I became a critic of advertising for 25 years and made fun of TV commercials for a living at a trade magazine called Advertising Age. Did you make a lot of enemies doing that? I believe I did. Yeah. yeah. I have sat at a dinner table in a fancy restaurant in Cannes and had an executive come across the dinner table. He had been overserved, but nonetheless uh, trying to physically assault me. I mean, that stuff happened. Yeah. Because of, you know, give me an example of why. You were, you, you were literally critiquing their creative output of the. You wrote a column, it was a column yeah, for yeah. Advertising Age, mm-hmm. in which you just comment, commented about whatever the hell you wanted to in the world of advertising. Yeah, you know the commercial, is, it's a Pepsi commercial that's shot in a, you look at it like from the security camera of a 7-Eleven or whatever, and you see the Coke vendor sneak to try to get a, um, a Pepsi from the Pepsi cooler instead of the Coke one, and he's looking around all furtively, and he goes to take this thing, and he pulls it out, and the whole every can tumbles out of the cooler and he's totally exposed busted right it's a pretty famous commercial directed by one of the greatest tv commercial directors who ever lived a guy named joe pitka and i thought what a great commercial and i i had a four star system i gave it three and a half stars why because for whatever reason they didn't record the sound of full soda cans falling out of a cooler and then layer it over the actual sound, which we hear in the commercial, which is of empty cans, prop cans falling out. So there's really, you see it, it's funny, but there's this tinny sound of empty cans, right? And yeah, you go, wait, what? of all details to, to leave out. So I knocked them down. I didn't usually do this because I was worried about my key issue was whether it would sell goods and services. But in this case, it was an annoyance and I gave it three and a half stars. I, you would have thought that I had written that this guy was a Nazi, that he was a pedophile. No, I took off a half a star for sound effects, and he wanted to kill me. Now, 25 years you do that? Yeah. And, and during that time, do you just have your political gland removed? Uh, I took my shots. Uh, you know, I, having a column enables you to get any random opinion in through the prism of whatever it is you're nominally writing about. So I took my shots. You know, I wrote some op-eds. You know, there were like eight Bob Garfields, and the ad critic was just one of them. But I also started working at almost the same time for NPR, for all things considered, as a roving feature correspondent, going around looking for weird, quirky kinds of Americana. The guy who wanted to do a home cryonics experiment in his backyard and got a sear shed, and there was Grandpa on, on dry ice. You know, that's that sort of thing. And I did hundreds and hundreds of these for ATC over over the same period of time. How did you connect with NPR? Ah, okay. Uh, I wrote an op-ed about going hunting with my then-in-laws. I'm a Jewish kid from the suburbs of Philadelphia. They were a Catholic family, much like yours, actually. It's, it, they were the bald ones except from western Pennsylvania. And, you know, they could all b- build a house <laughs> with their bare hands blindfolded, and they killed anything that moved yeah. with high-powered rifles. I remember once at Thanksgiving, my mother-in-law said to me, Bobby, would you handle, hand me that casserole from the top of the refrigerator? And I said, you mean this one next to the bullets? 
<laughs> so it's a different lifestyle. So I, I did a piece, uh, a fish out of water piece about going hunting with them and uh, sold it to the New York Times. It was going to be an op-ed page in the Times. They all laughed, 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 laughed. And then at the very last minute, they killed it because there were religion jokes in it. And they said, this is our only sacred cow. Well, it wasn't. But in any event, uh, with regret, they, they said, we're not going to run this after all. And for whatever reason, I don't know why I called All Things Considered. I wasn't even a regular listener to the show. And I talked to the executive producer, a guy named Art Silverman. He said, well, come in and read it. And I read it. It was on the air that night. So You I, have a great voice for radio. You'd never thought about that? That had never been pitched to you before? Well, in fact... In fa thank you. Yeah, but you speak so clearly. And... I, but I didn't. Oh, you didn't. I was there. Here's where I was when I was first starting in radio. You were drinking And athletes, I taught so. myself you were to come back here. This right. is this is pretend. I, mean, I don't know. It's, maybe it's natural, but I was here. In fact, the same guy with my second piece on the radio, I recorded it. You know, I wasn't there for the actual mix of the thing, and I didn't hear it because I was at work. And I called him and said, hey, Art, how did, how did I sound? He said, um... Subhuman. <laughs> Barely alive. But Bob Garfield has come alive in a major way over the last 16 years as the co-host of On the Media. Coming up, we talk about where he gets his news today and what he thinks about the election. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. Dick Cavett made a career on television by getting stars to open up as real people, but it wasn't always that way. I was going through old envelopes of stuff. I found three report cards from third, fourth, and fifth grade. Dick must learn to control his talking <laughs> is on two of them. And Dick must learn to let others talk occasionally, one of the wittier ones uh, put down. Take a listen at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Bob Garfield has been holding journalists and media makers accountable for decades. But as sources and outlets have proliferated, it's become no small task to keep tabs on everything that's out there. Garfield told me he's got one ace up his sleeve. One of the best things about being a co-host and on the media is we have a staff of six producers who are all better educated, smarter, uh, have more scope and uh, knowledge and understanding than I ever had on my best day on earth. They call to my attention stuff that I ordinarily in my aggregator. own media diet, wouldn't. they are my aggregators. So I'm in this situation where I have this most wonderful, rich inbox of stuff that has been curated by the s smartest, most curious people in the world. But my go-to is the, it's the New York Times. I, I, I'm sorry, but it, I think it's it's a daily miracle. Remnick was on our show and said, it's the weather. That was his line. It's the weather. <laughs> and I read the Washington Post. Uh, I'm from, I live in Washington, and that's my local paper. They're doing the best they can with their shrinking resources. The Times has cut way, way, way back on, in many areas, including most recently just plain local coverage of stuff that happens, including fires and crimes. They're cut way back. But they do the just most remarkable reporting. It just like seems like every week they're breaking another series about something that you just can't believe they got the story on. And whether it's 
whether it's uh, the conditions at Rikers or the, the cozy arrangements between think tanks and their funders, uh, a horrifying couple stories they did about, I don't know, two or three months ago, or nail salons, mm-hmm. they just blow me away all the time. Well, it's funny how you say that because people in my life always laugh at me. I have two stacks, the New Yorker and the New York Times, of back issues to read the long-form articles. The New Yorker as an institution it, it has labeled itself variously as the greatest magazine that, that ever was, and it is. Uh, there, there's not a week goes by that there isn't something in there that uh, is unbelievably illuminating and uh, sometimes validating in the way that we shouldn't worry about. But, oh, yeah, that's I like this story because it's my worldview too, and I'm glad to see it reflected, which is one of the things that has destroyed journalism, certainly on cable. That notion of because there is an infinite amount of content, we can now cherry pick what we want to consume, right? So, I mean, it's like uh, watching porn uh, online if your fetish is, you know, whatever, amputee, sure. uh, uh, Haitian lesbians, you can, you can get the whole thing, right? And that's what, that's what political journalism is now. If you look at the world a certain way, there is going to be this cornucopia of options where all you do is sit there and you get your worldview validated. So nothing on television for you, no television news viewing, nothing. Uh, no. No program. No. No Meet the Press. No. no. I sometimes watch parts of Meet the Press to see what happened when a newsmaker accidentally says something newsworthy, right? And at least there's journalism taking place there. But there is no journalism taking place on cable news. Unless there's a war actually breaking out and they're showing pictures of, of tracer Coverage, fire, yeah. it is nothing but talk not only talk about the news, but it's talk by pundits hired because what they're going to say is preordained. Mm-hmm. Uh, by, based they're on masturbating their, their audience. They, yeah. they certainly are. And uh, so there's no way there to go. You know, but I, you know, I read a lot of stuff in Slate, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Another one of my... 538, employees. have you gone to 538? I'm to 538. <laughs> OTM is in partnership with 538. My media diet is basically the, the New York Times... The Post and whatever the Post, uh, Washington Post. I'm sorry, <laughs> the real Post. Can't <laughs> <laughs> stir there, Bob. Uh, the Although po- the Post does have a good sports department, but go ahead. Uh, and their headline writers are pretty good. And I was good. The, the the Daily News. Whoever the person is who is the editor of the Daily News front page should get some sort of Nobel Prize. I don't know if there's a category for pith, but uh, there should be. Um. Uh, you know, I went to George Washington University. I went there for three years full time. I was in a pre-law program there. I mean, I was really, really locked and loaded that I wanted to run for office. How have we arrived at this place where both parties, this is the best we can offer right now? What, do, what is your opinion of that? Uh, my opinion is that this this election represents the manifestation of the inevitable. And because of that actually very phenomenon that I was describing before where we can go cherry-pick our media sources to match our worldview, the political rhetoric has vastly changed in this country. And we have been for the last 25 years or so in an ongoing campaign. I mean, this is, this is not an, an, a notion novel to me. Uh, there is a perpetual campaign. And everything is about scoring political points and running down the opposition and um, 
fighting culture nullification. wars, nullification. And it's turned out to be a very uh, solid cottage industry for Rupert Murdoch and a few others. But the problem is nobody actually does any governing. And governing is impossible, especially on the legislative level, because because every bill that comes to the floor is a, a battle, and you have to win the battle. Right. And it Nothing's doesn't easy. matter what happens to the uh, the electorate, the people. Do we need they go to the mattresses over everything? Over now. everything. And as a consequence, particularly in the Republican Party, the voices have gotten ever shriller ever less tethered to reality. I mean, for God's sakes, almost the entire roster of candidates who were seeking the Republican nomination are in one stage or another a denial about global warming. Quite a number of them believe in creationism. You know, they think there was a Noah's Ark <laughs> and a Garden of Eden. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. How has it come to be that this has become the mainstream? Well, it's been incremental. Yeah. And... And as anti-science as they are, too. Anti-science, anti-intellectual, anti-fact. Without getting into him and shooting fish in a barrel about Trump's demeanor, which is, you know, that's been done to a fairly well. What troubles you about her, primarily? Well, what troubles me about her is more or less the same thing that's going to make me vote for her. I mean, she's a technocrat wonk in the Clinton mold, right? She's one of them. You know, that's why... I feel safe casting my ballot for her. I, she, let's just start with she doesn't appear to be insane. Whatever she's done in her past that was sleazy or had the appearance of being sleazy, it just doesn't begin to uh, matter c- compared to what she's running against, right? But there's, you know, she's a professional politician. She has this history of lies, of some politically opportunistic some done in the heat of a campaign against Obama, for example, and uh, the Bosnian runway is a little bit appalling. In fact, it's a lot appalling. You know, it's, really, she's the best, but she's also a, a victim of, she was, you know, really the first, the proto-victim, the er-victim of the great right-wing media conspiracy. They were out for nothing less than destroying the Clintons, and they used the Congress to do it. That was their tool. They're, they're really good I at that. I love Tubin's book on that subject. I thought Tubin's book was very good. And we talked about those Chicago law firms and the, uh, how much they were out to and how the tentacles, how far they went of that group that was out to get the Clintons. Yeah, it's not rhetoric. I mean, it was an extremely well-funded actual conspiracy. Richard Mellon, Scaife, and uh, you know, a Philadelphia. I think I think he, he was a Pittsburgh. Was he Pittsburghian? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, th- the thing about her, though, is that, I mean, with what I do for a living, we're asked to look at the, the drama inside and the motivation inside the person. You know, why do they do what they do? The public, the membrane between the public and the private to, in order to create the character. They're out there in the world doing this, but here's what's really going on. And with her, I always thought, and I don't, I don't fault her for this. With her, I always thought her whole life was about rewriting her epitaph. Her whole life in the last, it's like, and then he was indicted and he was impeached and he was acquitted and they all went off to Chappaqua together and she just took a pencil and went, not so fast. Then she went on to become a United States senator from New York and the secretary of state and the first, but what I'm hopeful about, and this is, you know, this is the last vestige of my, my passion for or my faith in 
some shard of what this country is about is that she will get in there and she will help to reshape the court and we'll get the citizens united they taken care of once and for all and so we got to get the money out of this game we need i mean the country's been run by ivy league men half the presidents since kennedy have been ivy league men half kennedy went to harvard uh, uh johnson went to texas state teachers college uh nixon went to whittier college ford went to michigan uh, Carter was in the Naval Academy. Reagan went to uh, uh, Eureka College. And then uh, we have Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama. You got four Ivy Leaguers in a row. You know, the, the, the best and the brightest have been running this country for the last, since 1988. And where's it gotten us? I mean, no worse, no better than the non Ivy Leaguers. But the problem is they're all professional politicians. They're all people. You think any of these people lay in bed? Do you think for one minute? Hillary Clinton, forget about Trump, they lay in bed and, and their significant other is saying to them, what's the matter, baby? I hear you tossing and turn over. Well, you know, I just gotta, I gotta work out this whole uh, social security thing. It's just <laughs> driving me crazy. Actually, I gotta tell you, I do think, I do think Clinton does do that. I mean, it, uh, that's what defines the Clintons because their overweening ambition is equally to fly in Air Force One and to change public policy. Change public policy. They are as ambitious as technocrats as they are politicians. And, you know, that's the deal. That's the, the right. that's the devil's deal when you, when you get one of those. And, and really all politicians. I mean, almost by definition, anyone who would seek public office and do to themselves and their family the, the many, many uh, uh, indignities that goes along with it, including the, the brothel that is campaign finance, you have to assume that there's something just off there. Uh, I, I, you know, I wouldn't mind if my daughter came home with a motorcycle mechanic. I would really be upset if she came back with some, you know, young guy in a white shirt and orange tie running for Congress. I'd really be upset. <laughs> Where do you think we're going to be? Do you think that the network news, because they have an edict apparently from the uh, from the government, the uh, uh, the fairness doctrine, and also what's the what's the law that they're required to show the news? The uh, well, there was, there was a public service requirement right. that you had to maintain in exchange for uh, having a, a broadcast license and to use the public airwaves. I don't think that has actually been law since the Reagan administration. I think the fairness doctrine is history. What happened, though, in, at almost exactly the same time as they no longer had to uh, run public service content is it became enormously profitable. And back in the 70s, Rune Arledge, who had gone from ABC Sports mm -hmm. uh, to ABC News, figured out, wait, 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 wait. There's gold in them, our hills. And all of a sudden, this backwater that they were doing out of civic duty and certain amount of congressional impetus was making the money hand over fist. And, uh, and it was that way until you know, about 10 years ago, and the network news is in exactly the same situation that every other news organization is in, this death spiral of the media economy, and now they're, you know, they're cutting back, and their audience is shrinking, 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 and uh, the people who watch them are not going to be around for much longer because the average viewer of uh, the CBS Evening News has been clinically dead since 2006. So uh, it's, uh, you know, they're facing... 
basically facing the same kind of problem. Do you think that in the likelihood that she wins, I mean, I'm not just saying this because I'm a supporter of hers, but do you think that considering the likelihood that she would win and then he's going to go wherever he goes, um, now we're here and Trump is the nominee, what happens in the next round? Who are they going to run against Hillary next time? What kind of person? Will they learn something from this? The only, I mean, I'm trying to think, <laughs> I'm trying to follow the trajectory Remember a little while ago, I said this was an inevitability that we had to come to this because the the party kept getting more. The mainstream uh, became more and more fringe. The fringe became more and more mainstream, and I, I suppose uh, that Trump is the quintessence of that, the apotheosis of uh, of perversion of whatever it is the. GOP once st stood for, but the you know the the trajectory presumably can only get worse. But what's worse? Hmm. I'm thinking I don't know that that monster from Alien that <laughs> comes out of his rib cage uh, or hers, and I I don't know. I the party rents Priebus is I I don't understand I mean, what's I mean, happening. How has he kept his job? I'm mystified. I, I'm mystified. What are they? You know, what are they going for? I I guess it's all Although about the, the Supreme of, Court, right. and and that is true. true. Because listen, with the Congress being in the state that it is, nobody's going to be passing any Obamacare. Nothing is going to get through the Congress. It is going to be in an absolute standstill, I suppose. And therefore, what you know, if there's no legislation, what's the president going to be the president of? Well. She can start a war, you know, and she can appoint the judiciary. And probably, but not necessarily, probably the Senate will actually have to do its job and uh, confirm or not confirm these, these candidates. Uh, you know, there's already large backups, including the Supreme Court seat, uh, because the Senate has not wanted to act on judiciary appointments. But presuming that can't last forever, that they got to uh, offer their advice and consent, uh, that's the president's, the new president's influence, and that's what it's all about. That's why evangelicals are are going to vote for this buffoon, this apparently immoral or amoral, childish, sleazy buffoon. Incomplete. And incomplete I mean, you know, how do they? Gosh, how do you? How do you pull the lever if you're an Iowa evangelical? How do you go in and pull the lever for this? Train wreck out of, out of, of that a, kind of, of a hatred. Person. He's like the worst person ever. But, but and, and I want to say to people, I want to say, it, it, like your hatred of her, I really don't get it. She's not that hateable. I, mean, I, I have my reservations about her too, and I'm happy to voice those. But I don't hesitate to voice those. But um, when I see people going, you hate her that much that you're going to pull the lever for him as a, as an expression of that, I'm like, you know, wrong, 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 wrong. I think it was but, the cookies, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I think it goes back to her saying she's not going to sit around baking cookies which was an insult to a lot of cookie-baking women who really cherished their roles in what they perceived as the traditional American family. And it was, it was a spike in the heart of their values, and they will never, ever forget it. Um, my last question for you, and I want to phrase this uh, carefully, is, uh, um, you know, Howard Stern, when I would do Howard Stern show, and most people who know Howard know this, that off mic, he's nothing like he is on mic. On, on microphone, he's you know, blown himself up, to use Jerry Seinfeld's term for his onstage persona. And, uh, and for you, I'm wondering, you know, on your show, you are wonderfully so. Uh, very angry and very bitter and very cynical inside the content of your show. 
almost so much so, like sometimes I'll listen to you and I'll think, this guy's going to have a heart attack on the air while he's reporting this. A slow motion heart attack, but a heart attack nonetheless. Um, is, that, is that an accurate depiction of you? I think it's fair to say that you and I are um, B-I-A-M. We're brothers in anger management <laughs> issues. And uh, uh, that, yeah, what you hear is what you get. I mean, I, I get angry at telemarketers. Now, that is, that's wasted anger. Uh, but I'm angry that they're interrupting me. I'm angry that they're lying to me, that they're criminals. It just makes me mad. And, you know, you think I would have exorcised those demons long ere this because they're not going away. <clears throat> So why do I permit myself to get pissed off a lot? Because it's, uh, either I'm the most honorable man and I cannot separate the daily annoyances of life from uh, actual issues of uh, moral conduct in this world, or I have a defect. And I'm not sure exactly what it is. I'm guessing it's a little bit of both. You can hear Bob Garfield and Brooke Gladstone on the media on over 400 radio stations nationwide and on demand at onthemedia.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from WNYC Studios.